This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-wy-giving. 1 Peter chapter 4. Now we left off we covered in the last Bible study, I know it's been three weeks, but we covered paragraph three last uh, in the last Bible study that we were in, First Peter. We talked about from verse three, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened unto you, or as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And then this leads right into the next paragraph, which is where we want to begin with the new stuff tonight, where he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet, and yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now let's stop right there. There's a little bit to unpack here. First, he begins by admonishing us, don't let any of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. He's making it clear, he's been making it clear throughout this letter that there is suffering to be had in the Christian life. Yes, we're not going to dodge that bullet, brother, no matter how much we would like to. And I'm not saying it's wrong to like to avoid suffering. Nobody that I know of in their right mind likes to suffer, but he says that in, your, in the midst of your suffering, don't let any of you, don't let anyone that's called a brother or a sister suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, or even, and it's, it's interesting that he adds this last one in there with evildoers, thieves, and murderers, as a busybody in other men's matters. Have you ever been around someone was, that was like that? Man, they just had to know all the business of all the church people's lives. Hey, so what's going on with this? Hey, so what's going on with that? Hey, tell me about this. What's going on with this? And, you, and their nose, their nose is so much larger than their head because they're just super nosy. Now, there's a difference between some genuine concern and someone that's checking up on a situation that they know about because they're looking for a good report and they've been praying for you. You can tell the difference between pure-hearted concern and someone just being a busybody all up in everybody else's business because people like that, busybodies, a lot of them understand that information is power. 
And when they have information, when they have the dirt on people, or when they have information about people's lives, and then that that gives them a great uh, uh, that can give them sort of a de facto greater standing in a congregation because they're in the know about everybody's business. But here, Peter tells us not to be like that. He says, "Let none of you suffer as a murderer." My goodness, don't ever let something like that happen among a group of believers, or as a thief, or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. It's okay to be concerned, but what's the first thing that a Christian brother or sister should do with their concern uh, regarding someone else in the church? We should take it to the Lord in prayer. Amen? It's like, well, I'm concerned about so-and-so. And I've been guilty of this sort of thing, too. Many years ago, back in the 1990s, there was a fellow that I knew. He'd been, he'd been in seminary, and then he was out of seminary. And when I showed up, he was long gone. And he was a guy that I'd known years before in the church, and I wanted to know about him. And so, you know, you play that you play that concern card. You know, like, hey, what's going on with so-and-so? I just want to know how I should pray for them. Really? <laughs> no, that's not why you're asking. You just want to know what the deal is with so-and-so. At least be forthcoming and honest. Hey, where's this guy? You know, what's going on with... And I'm not... That's not a loaded thing. It's just that, you know, when we do have a pure-hearted concern, yes, it's not necessarily wrong to ask about it, but the very first thing we should do is to pray for that person. Just pray for that person. Just pray. Well, well, I need to know how to pray. Okay, well, God knows the details, doesn't he? He knows the details, and so let's just take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, again, it's not to say that it's never that it's never right to ask. I've asked many times. You know, we just want to make sure that we have a pure heart in the we have a pure heart in the matter, and God knows when we do or if we don't. Verse sixteen, he goes on. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So what's he saying? Well, judgment always begins at the house of God, doesn't it? Judgment always begins with that group that is closest to him. It always begins with that group that is closest to God. Look back in the Old Testament. Look back to how God dealt with the children of Israel when they were coming out of bondage in Egypt and crossing the wilderness on their way to the promised land. There were some harsh judgments that were, that were rendered and some harsh judgments that were executed against the children of Israel and certain of them that spoke against God, that murmured against God. And he wasn't always, he wasn't always quick to judge. You know, he wasn't always quick to judge at all. He was very patient with them. But there were certain things that happened that had to be put down immediately lest they gain a root in the Jews as a culture and then it would be something that would vex them throughout their history. Thus, the fiery serpents that were sent among them. We preached about that lately. Um, the destruction of Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire before the Lord. Uh, and the, uh, the rebellion of Korah and other things that you, that you read about that God put down, even the golden calf, things that God did that put down evil doing at the very beginnings of these things so that they didn't have a chance to take root in the, in the, in the Israelites' heart. 
And then not only the Old Testament do you find examples of this, but in the New Testament as well. Look to Ananias and Sapphira. They're at the beginnings of the church and they're in the book of Acts when they conspired to defraud and, uh, and to deceive in order that they might gain extra prestige and admiration among the, among the young church of God. They lied to the Holy Ghost and they fell down dead, both Ananias and his wife Sapphira, each of them having a chance to do right, but choosing to do wrong. And so judgment begins with that group of people that are closest to him. Therefore, judgment begins with you and me. It begins with the leadership, and you see that precedented over and over again in the Old Testament, and, and even some of those visions that that, we, that we've uh, one of those visions that we preached preached out, uh, preached out of recently out of Zechariah. Judgment always begins with the leadership, and in, in Israel, it began with the high priest, and it began with the with the governor or the king or whoever was in charge of the civil government at that time. And in the church, it begins with the pastors and the preachers and the teachers the evangelists and those that we were talking about last week and that incorporated the, the structure of the church. Judgment begins at the house of God. And then from the leadership of the church, it, it, it goes on into the membership of the church. Not that I'm trying to, uh, to conflate the hierarchy necessarily, but it always begins with the leadership and then it moves into the rank and file and then it moves outward from there. It always begins with us. And so he says this, for judgment, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And I don't know about you, but you see the modern American church and the state that the modern American church is in, like we were just talking about right before we came down, brother, and the state that many modern and current culture churches are in. And we're in some need of some judgment. We really are. We're in some real need of some judgment to, to begin in the various houses of God to get these groups straightened out. So, and, and then of course this brings up something else and we, that, that we preached out of just, I think on Sunday night, we preached out of the revelation. We preached about the crown, the letter to the church uh, there, uh, to the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia, where there were seven letters written in those, in chapters two and three of the revelation, seven letters, each written to one of the seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And five of those letters contained uh, correction and reproof, as well as some commendation for things that they were doing right. And that was good. What was God doing? Judgment began at the house of God, even in the very beginning of the church. And so if it was needed back then at the beginning, how much more is it needed now? We're 2,000 years into this dispensation of grace. And no, it's not like somebody recently said on, uh, uh, on, on social media that, the, you know, that the, the church age is over with and God's not saving people in churches anymore. That's absolute nonsense. There's nothing scriptural behind that whatsoever. I've never seen any scriptural support for that. This age of grace we're still in. It's the same age of grace that we've been in for the last 2,000 years. God is saving people however and wherever he may wherever and however the Holy Spirit is able to apprehend the heart and they respond rightly to that. Judgment begins at the house of God and judgment is needed at the house of God because what happens when the house of God becomes compromised as far as the truth is concerned? And man, we are seeing a lot of it, 
a lot of it. And it's not that I'm going around trying to look and see who's right and wrong, but you hear reports from people that go to some of these places and you hear that pastor so-and-so of some uh, what's its uh, assembly or church or fellowship or whatever, you know, is get, getting up there and preaching something that is so far out in left field, unscriptural, that it's terrifying. But because people don't read their Bibles, they don't make themselves scholars of the word and disciples of our Lord. They don't know nothing from nothing. All they know is what meme they've seen, what shoestring scripture has been picked out of something, turned into a nice graphic, you know, had a picture slapped on it and put up on somebody's Facebook page. And they go, oh, wow, that's amazing. And then you get a bunch of yas queens that get in there and give it a thumbs up and a love and a heart and a yas sister, preach it. And they don't know what they're even affirming. But we've got Bible that talks about that, don't we? In fact, since I brought it up, Let's bring it out from 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to 1 Timothy in chapter 1, where he says, when he talks about the end of the commandment being charity out of a pure heart, boy, that was something we preached not very long ago, and out of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law. Why? Because they want the prestige desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. You see that all over social media when it comes to Christian Facebook pages, Christian websites, Christian Twitter accounts and things like that, and people throwing this stuff around and really not grasping what they're talking about. And then they throw their amens up there, and that's good. I mean, I appreciate that. We've got an active Facebook page, so I'm not trying to rain fire or, or rain on that parade or anything like that. We just want to make sure that we're right and we're scriptural in, in the things that we're putting up and the things that we're agreeing with and giving our likes and our hearts and our favor and, and our reactions to and in our social media. Make sure that we understand what we're, what we're backing up. Because judgment begins at the house of God, because it has to begin at the house of God. Because if the church is overthrown, the world has no hope. But what typically happens is this, okay? Let not your heart be troubled. A church gets compromised or is compromised in its doctrine, and it's compromised in its belief, and it's compromised in its practices. God simply raises up another one. Because there is always someone looking for the truth and who is ready to be serious with God. And so there you have it. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? And what ties into that is the very next verse, verse 18. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? You have to remember that even though I don't, I don't like necessarily present, I don't like to present it as the Christian is just barely hanging on by a thread. I'm not trying to put it forth like that. But that language is pretty clear. If we are in fact scarcely saved, and now that goes against a lot of modern internet means. I'm abundantly saved. I'm extravagantly saved. I'm, oh, we just love to commit verbicide and just abuse our own language, you know. And, and in some ways, yes, you can say that. It's not like we've only been half saved. 
we are fully saved by the grace of Almighty God. But the scarcely part comes in with this. It's only the grace of God. That's the only thing that mean, that, that, that we are saved by. We're not saved by our obedience. Obedience comes as a result of the grace of God, as a result of our love for God and God's love for us. It's not our works. We beat that horse to death umpteen times every single year to make sure that never takes root in our hearts and, and to make sure that others know that that's not where our thinking is. And I think one reason why I focus so much on that is because we do place a greater emphasis on works in our church than a lot of people, than a lot of places do. Because, or else it's that false dichotomy, just to give another sneak preview on our upcoming series of studies on relationships, the relationship between faith and works. It's not all faith and no works, although for salvation, yes, it is all faith. But for the Christian, but for the Christian life, works are a part of that. And you can't get away from that because James says that faith without works is dead. So we do have a little bit more of an emphasis, somewhat more of an emphasis on that because we want to make sure we're living our faith or what in the world good are we? How are we being a light to the world if we're not doing anything with what we have? So I'm holding fast my crown. Awesome. Now let's do something with it, right? Or whatever it is that we've received from God. Just to touch back on uh, Sunday night's message. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? So does that mean that the righteous is barely saved? No. It just means that there's only one thing that's saving us. And that's the grace of Almighty God by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what saves. We have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only avenue of salvation that God has given us. That is the demonstration of saving faith in this dispensation, in this age that we're in. So we can't go back to the law of Moses and say, well, you know, this Jesus thing isn't really working out for me. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go back to the old design and I'm gonna work with that. I'm just gonna go back to the law and I'm gonna, well, okay, well, good luck with that for lots of different reasons. Plus, you better keep all of the law, okay? But, and that, I think, I think that that's one reason why. Now, this is just speculation. Don't take this as a fact. Don't take this as gospel truth. But it is my strong suspicion. I think that's one reason, if not even the main reason, why God allowed the temple, the second temple, the temple that was there during Jesus' time, to be destroyed, because with the destruction of the temple, it's kind of hard to do the animal sacrifices anymore after that. It's kind of hard to, uh, to keep the whole law. And I don't know at what point in the, in the history of, of Israel, I don't know at what point the, uh, uh, the priests, the Kohenim, as they're, as they're referred to plurally, the Kohenim, at what time the priesthood of Aaron uh, just sort of found itself, um, I wouldn't say disbanded, but basically unable to perform the tasks of a priest. Because if you look at the modern Jewish communities now, you don't see any priests doing anything. You don't see any priests at all. You see a lot of people with the last name of Cohen, and that's derivative of that. But you don't see any active priests. All you see is rabbis, which are teachers, which according to one source is even a secular figure, uh, although I don't know exactly how that plays out. But you see rabbis teaching, and that's just about it. So there really is. That ship was burned. 
That bridge was burned. There's no going back. There's no going back to that old way. We have Christ and we have Christ only and thus we are saved. Yes, we're abundantly saved. Yes, we are thoroughly saved. Yes, but it is only that one thing that enables us, that allows us to be saved. The grace of Almighty God and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So he says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, if we just got this one thing that's keeping us on the right side of things where God is concerned and is sparing us from the, the, the indignant flames of hell, so to speak, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Well, that we know the answer to that. They appear on the wrong side of judgment. They appear on the side that is the recipients of wrath and destruction. If so be, they do not repent before they pass out of this life. Moving on. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And sometimes that's just the only thing you can do. When you're suffering, especially if you're suffering for your faith, when your faith is being tried, when you're being tempted, when there are things that are going wrong in your life and you've done everything you know how to do and it's just not fixing anything, sometimes all you can do is just commit the keeping of your soul to God in well-doing and resolve within your heart, you know what, no matter what I'm going through, no matter if it's a sickness, no matter if it's just a trial, if it's temporary, if it's permanent, whether you're going through something that has a, a large potential for lifelong impact or whether you're just going through something that is hard for a season and then it will be past and you'll be beyond it, let us commit the keeping of our souls to God in well-doing. What does he mean by that? Let us com commit the keeping of our souls to God in doing good. So we're already saved, so we're not talking faith, we're not talking salvation by works. We're already saved. But if you're going through something, just commit the keeping of your soul to God and continue steady as she goes. Do what you know to do that is right and pleasing to God. That is our service to Him, that is our life in Him and for Him. So, well, you don't know what I got going on. There's family problems that I got going on. There's, you know, there's this and there's that. And there's so many things. Right. Well, what can you do about it? And not to make light of it at all, but there's a point where you, you're up against that brick wall of realism and you got to, well, what in the world can I do about this? Okay. Well, the answer is, well, nothing. This is how it is, and except the Lord change it, this is how it's going to be. And so, well, what am I going to do about it then? How many of you have heard of a man named Dave Reaver? Dave Reaver was a, a Navy SEAL in Vietnam who was in a combat situation, had a white phosphorus grenade in his hand that he was ready to throw. And white, white phosphorus is, uh, is some pretty horrible stuff because it burns no matter what. Water does not put it out. And as he was preparing to throw, I think it was a night fight, I don't recall. But as he was preparing to throw that grenade, it either got shot or it exploded in his hand somehow. And he was covered in white phosphorus, ignited white phosphorus, burning him. And so into the river he went because they were on like some kind of a PT boat or, or some sort of a strategic craft or something. Maybe it was a raft. Into the river he went and the fire continued to burn him in the water, of course, because 
white phosphorus burns underwater. And he came up out of those waves or out of the water in that river. And uh, according to his testimony, he yelled, God, I still believe in you. Now, that's an incredible testimony. And according to him, I think a couple of just this God-hating sinners in his platoon um, or whatever they called a group of Navy SEALs in his SEAL, SEAL team, um, they gave their hearts to Jesus like on the spot or something like that. It was something like that. He went on to uh, recovery in the hospital. He suffered horrible burns over the vast majority of his body. Um, and, you know, they patched him up and grafted and they did everything they could uh, to fix him. And it was largely successful, but he was covered in these horrific scars. He, in his testimony, he talked about while he was recovering, he hit a very low, low, low part in, in his recovery. And his wife was faithful, stayed with him when other men's wives abandoned their husbands with horrible injuries. You know, it just really bad stuff. But his wife, his wife, praise God, was always there with him and always supporting him. But at one point, at the lowest point in his recovery, one of the low points in his recovery, he prayed and he told God, I don't want this. I don't want these scars. I don't want any of this stuff. I want you to take them away. I want you to fix all of this. I don't want to deal with any of this stuff. And in fact, you're going to do it or else. You know, we're going to talk to God like that. Huh? <laughs> and I, th I think, if I remember his testimony correctly, God responded to him and said, or else what? And, uh, and, and, and Dave gave up that fight real fast. And he just said, well, or else I'm just going to go on serving you like I have because you're God. And, <laughs> and then that battle was over. He won the battle that he was talking about here. He committed his soul to God in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. What are you going to do? That doesn't mean that you give up your faith that things will ever get better. It doesn't mean that. He's not saying that you just embrace a fatalistic view of Christianity and throw it all to the wind and oh, I'll never be healed because then that's a case of, you know, well, okay, according to your faith, so be it unto you. You know, he's not saying that. He's just saying, if you're suffering according to the will of God, just commit your soul to him and continue in well-doing, continue in doing right, continue in serving and pleasing the Lord our God. Amen? And there you have it. And God will bless in due time in a way that is best for you, in a way that is pleasing to him, and we just stand on that. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.